A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Herlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP of Data Mesh Consulting Services at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading sponsor for Trino, the open source project, and Jamak's Data Mesh book, delivering data-driven value at scale. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in today's episode? I interviewed Rhea Singh, who's Business Insights Manager at Iterable. So before we jump into the uh, points here, one quick thing that I want to note is Iterable is a startup that's kind of early in their journey around decentralizing data. So I wouldn't quite say that they're doing data mesh just yet, but they're figuring out the balance between centralization and decentralization. And I think it's useful to hear a story of somebody that's, you know, doing pretty well with still having some centralized parts of their their data processes and their data teams with that central ownership. Because I don't think everybody should decentralize. I think decentralizing too early is going to cost a lot of people a lot of time and effort. And, you know, if it's not your cause of your bottlenecks in data, the centralized team isn't your enemy until it is. Some key takeaways and thoughts from Rhea's point of view. Number one, about four years ago, Iterable was in essentially, you know, spreadsheet hell with lots of manual data work and no standard way of storing or sharing data across domains. While domains had good data capabilities, the integration and coordination between domains was very difficult at best. So, Number two, most exact questions couldn't be answered by the data from a single domain. And I think that's kind of general in most industries, most organizations, that a lot of these exact questions can't be answered from data from a single domain. So cross-domain data integration comes a key factor, and it became one for iterable in continuing to grow. 
How could they make crucial decisions informed by data if there was so much manual work to try to integrate ad hoc? Could they really trust something done manually each time? Number three, fast time to market for simple base level capabilities of their data platform was much more valuable than trying to nail every feature up front. Data consumers understood it wasn't perfect data at the start, but it led to much faster exploratory data initiatives, which led to valuable insights sooner. It led to a return quicker. Number four, you might have a much higher ROI buying tools than trying to really get by on low cost, but not feature rich tooling. If you build a very cost efficient data platform that no one wants to use, is that actually valuable? How much time will you spend managing the tools or is it worth it to outsource that to a vendor? Is it worth it to spend a bit more? Number five, combining data across sales, marketing, and product, Iterable could tailor marketing messages and find better prospects, measure marketing return on investment, and cost optimize their operations and and product, among many other new insights. Number six, as teams that previously weren't directly interacting, start to have more conversations, gaps in your data, whether in data created, collected, or in data shared, will emerge. Filling those gaps will mean you can answer more high-value questions to drive business forward. Number seven, at Iterable, when there is a specific use case identified for cross-domain data integration, The central data team takes over ownership of what would be considered a consumer-aligned data set in kind of data mesh terms. With only four to five domains, Iterable doesn't need to decentralize the data team yet. The cost of decentralizing is far greater than the benefit right now. Number eight, Iterable found the most value by doing exploratory data analysis, then quickly moving to minimum viable consumable form for their data consumers. Then they work to continue to improve the data set. This approach means a fast time to value by grabbing the the low-hanging fruit while continually driving to better data and incremental value. But to do this, consumers must be very aware of what they are getting and when. Number nine, a key way to keep stakeholders informed and bought in is by constantly keeping them updated on progress. Jen Tedrow talked about this in her episode as well. Keep people informed of progress or ongoing investigations so you can stay coordinated and all parties understand decisions along the way. Finally, number 10, at Iterable, conversations between domains are happening weekly. That way, there is always space for people to keep each other updated on upcoming changes or new information that they've they've kind of gathered. It makes it easy to keep each other informed. This is far harder for organizations with many domains, but still useful general advice. Much like in any good relationship, schedule the time to exchange some context. (laughs) Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode.
Okay, very, very excited for today's episode. I've got uh, Rhea Singh here, who's the Business Insights Manager at Iterable. And I came across uh, Rhea from a post that she had written about what they're doing in and around their data management with uh, a data mesh approach and that they're, you know, um, how they're approaching things with their journey. So what we're going to cover today a lot is how they started to, to set up their architecture, you know, slow egg, the slow evolution of existing versus um, kind of the greenfield approach, what's worked well, what hasn't worked so well, <laughs> things things that she'd change if she could go back and, and uh, prevent um, some of the decisions that were made and, you know, just kind of an honest feedback cycle, which I'm really, really, really excited about because a lot of times these conversations are people trying to say, oh, everything is is rosy and positive. So I think somebody that that can can say the, the positives and the negatives is going to be very, very helpful for the audience. So with that, uh, Rhea, if you don't mind, if you could give people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Yep. Sounds great. Hi, everybody. I'm Rhea, and I've been working in the data and technology space for the past eight years. Um, primarily, I have been involved in revenue operations, and I've moved into BI in my last role for the last four years, where I've been the owner of the enterprise data architecture and helped kind of build out our data tech stack that involves a variety of different BI and data science and database management tools. And um, finally, like Scott had mentioned early on, we kind of went with the data mesh approach at Iterable. And I'm very excited to talk to you all about kind of the journey of what led us to taking on that approach, how we set up our architecture, and eventually kind of some of the pitfalls and learnings during that time. So Awesome. Awesome. And and I think that you kind of set up the perfect first question for yourself. You teed yourself up. So thank you for doing that. Makes my job yeah. easier. But of like, what, what was the situation that you saw? What were the signs that you saw that something wasn't where you wanted it to be or could be better? Or what, what were the things that, that made you either go looking or that you saw a data mesh and decided we should do this rather than you were looking or just would love to hear kind of that story? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so early on, like when I joined Iterable, it is um, it is a startup. And at that time, it was like 100, under 100 people. So we were definitely going through our hyper growth phase. So a lot of the applications that were in place were kind of fractured and living in silos. So we really didn't have a BI environment at all. But um, there was a lot of fractured reporting and manually generated Excel reports and metrics coming in from each department. And it was really hard to kind of take data-driven decisions, right, across the uh, across the company. And it was a huge need for, like, to effortlessly and, like, enable seamless, like, company-wide success and efficient growth, like, by combining all of these metrics into a single space. So that's kind of where the need for evolving a BI tech stack um, happened. How we fell into the concept of building a data mesh was that we saw that each of the organization had a pretty, like, evolved, like, a set of tools and kind of data architecture that they had. And while you want to be able to join all of these different like data models across like the go-to-market divisions, you still want each of the domains to be able to own and maintain their own data. Otherwise, it becomes like a massive effort 
for the BI team to own pretty much like every single data point, right? Like that falls within the go-to-market purview. So we the domain-driven ownership piece was really driving the need for a data mesh at Iterable as opposed to just having like a data lake or a data warehouse like that stores everything. Um, going into specifics, like in terms of like gaps that were we noted noticed was like... Uh, I wonder if I can like be able to like share the data also across different organizations while the domains are kind of owning each of their data. We also want to be able to like share that data. And a big use case for this was our product data. Our product data's architecture is completely different from anything that's coming from sales or marketing. However, sales and marketing are a really big consumer of like product data as they have like many different in initiatives such as driving like account scoring and sales or driving the ideal customer profile based on usage for marketing. So being able to share the data across different divisions as well was like the second kind of pillar of like driving the data mesh approach at um, Iterable and kind of a big need that we saw pop up um, around um, our different organizations. And ultimately, why we wanted BI to lead this approach is like, I think, pretty critical of the centralized and decentralized balance of data. We want to be able to have each of these divisions own specific fields as well as manage their own like, you know, input of like data sources. However, there needs to be a general standard that we want to be able to apply to all of these um, different like data models that are coming in. We want them to meet a certain threshold. So we wanted that balance of a centralized and decentralized like um data models. And those were kind of the key like gaps that we were trying to solve for. Um, that being said, we looked at a variety of different like uh, approaches or tech stacks that would help us achieve this. And I think the very first kind of tech stack that we put together, which was very basic, was have Stitch, um, which is an ETL vendor, piping in data to Snowflake, which were which was our top and pretty much the only choice for kind of that database um, that would allow us to split up like each of these data models into different divisions and having Snowflake then pipe out to Looker as a BI visualization tool. I want to take a pause here in terms of Scott, like if you have any, like if you think there would be beneficial to like double click into any of the things that I've kind of said. Well, and I think it's, it's interesting. I, I would love to understand, um, how who who really felt the the need behind a lot of this because i think you did lay out the problem that even though that the company isn't as large as a lot of the people that are looking at at uh data mesh and on that journey that mm -hmm. you were still seeing this very fractured um uh, approach or or fractured kind of outcome but that the domains mm -hmm. actually did want to own their data and were capable of owning that, which isn't necessarily the most common thing in, in non-tech companies, right? You're, you're in, in a, um, in a startup that is really focused on, um, you know, the software space itself. So like, yeah, you, you, you kind of are inherently a good, um, consumer for being able to do this and that you're, you're going to have kind of technically capable people in each of the domains. But 
who was the one that was really feeling the pain the most? Was it that the sales and marketing or was it that they, the execs that were trying to combine data from multiple different domains and were like, I can't put this stuff together? Or was it the BI team that was feeling all of the pain because you were having to do all of the manual bridge work between these kind of one-off reports that weren't, you know, that were super manual and probably didn't have the highest reliability? Like, what what was, who was having the loudest pain? And how did that start to drive that conversation? Because other people want to leverage, you know, not I don't know if I want to say leverage their pain, but I think you get what I mean of there's yeah. pain and they want to get moving with their data mesh journey. How, how can they learn from what you've, what, what you saw and what was the, the situation? I think for us in, it was definitely a top down approach where our executives kind of were feeling a little bit handicapped in order to get a specific type of data. And let me talk about specific examples. Like We have a value driver of, let's say, increasing revenue, right? So we have sales trying to drive, like, based on what are perfect accounts, right? And the example that I gave earlier, like, of understanding your customer base in terms of, like, what has worked well, what have you sold into, you want to be able to join your product data to your sales outcome data, right? Your CRM application data. And since those were living in two disparate sources, it was very tedious for a sales executive to understand like what kind of accounts should they be targeting or what kind of accounts they shouldn't be. And ultimately, for BI to provide value, we need to be able to join those two sources so we can kind of create either a predictive model or we can start like doing some sort of base level analysis around like, you know, wins and close loss deals and all of those aspects. Um, Very like standard and out of the box reporting was available on all of these things. I wouldn't say it wasn't like completely non-existent or, but to reach like the level of data maturity that um, to, in order to make those data driven decisions, what you really call instead of like just being kind of guided by reports that was really missing. And um, while sales like was struggling with this, we have like our marketing team trying to kind of piece together like marketing campaign like optimization what's the ROI on this like what specific types of fields of like what channels should they be investing more money in right like the biggest question at the end of the day from top down from any c-level executive down to each of like individual contributors like what is really successful with us and like where should we be increasing the budget and that's like a million dollar question for marketing in any given company right like in the SaaS space so like Um, That was a really big use case that we were kind of trying to work on and cost optimization, like reducing business operation costs in other spaces that are maybe not performing so well, or maybe like not the right avenue for success for us. So now, like in terms of like speaking to, um, I would say it was like pretty much at the executive level. Uh, I hope that answers the question. I do also have like other examples from like CS side of the house, kind of very similar again, like product data, using that to really understand like adoption of the customer, being able to understand like, hey, what has made like our growth in a certain account, like this land and expand deal, what went well with this? What are stickiness features of our specific product, right? So though there was like, it was really driven, I would say like the biggest divide was from the engineering side of the house, like the back end, what we call, and our front end go-to-market data. There are ways for the go-to-market teams to work well with each other. Like marketing sales can share data because they're primarily living 
on the same platform of Salesforce. However, having product data live outside that environment was the biggest gap and challenge that we were able to solve for. But this is also like conversation has helped us surface like other gaps and silos between those divisions as well. Um, but it was definitely a top-down approach as BI was a very relatively new uh, organization as I was stepping in about four years ago. We were like very new. We were more trying to understand the landscape and understand how we can optimize for it. So we we weren't really primarily driving a lot of this reporting. It was coming from these like individual teams. Yeah, and, and I think... One of the things that you said in there, I mean, you said a lot of really, really useful things, especially because I, I worked um, sales ops and I like I had to uh, run our Salesforce instance and like trying to bring in product data and nobody really owned the APIs and the Salesforce APIs suck. And so <laughs> trying to deal with all that, not not a huge uh, or not a fun thing to do. But um, the thing that you said towards the end was the conversations really helped to surface a lot of the gaps. And I think that's an important aspect of, of being successful with something like data mesh is that it, there were, there are so many unasked questions or that when you have people actually get in the room and figure out how we're going to exchange information that they're like, what, what are you actually trying to accomplish? Oh, I have this information you don't know exists and I can put that in front of you. You know, you're talking about the product data, the usage data, all of that can be so, so valuable if it's framed in the right way. But if it's not, then it's just information overload. You know, I, I worked at a company and there were probably 200 fields that came from the product and many of them were wrong and many of them were confusing. And there was one salesperson out of, you know, 10 or 12 that actually understood what the information was saying and what it meant. And everybody yeah. else was just completely you know, lost. And so it, it's so important, I think, that you can drive so much incremental value by just getting the conversation started about what do we have and what, what could be useful to you. I, I, I really liked that you, you landed on that. I think that's really a crucial point to, to hit on. So, um, no, I, and, and you, you did a great job of just providing all the examples without me having to ask. So let's jump into a little bit about where you were with kind of like this journey around making the selections, right? You had all these different domains had kind of mature tech stacks and it can be hard to get them to move off of those tech stacks. So like, how did you start to work with them and, and figure out how, what they can own and what should be centralized and what should be decentralized and like, how can you get them at least sharing in a common format or way or, or standard or whatever you want to call it, I would love to hear kind of how that process went and if there was any kicking and screaming and dragging people along. Um, there definitely is. I think the biggest challenge, what was for us, like as our BI team is structured on the revenue operations org, which kind of sits outside of engineering and engineering already had um, a big use case for uh they're using their own data science tech stack as well as backend. So there was a lot of pitch from the engineering side of the house to evaluate some of their tools. And that includes Databricks and um, using maybe even Postgres and like these ex existing databases that um, 
that the engineering teams are using. However, um, it became apparently very quickly, very clear that um, we would have to look for something that would give us a lot more, you know, uh, the UI and as well as like a lot more autonomy around like um, a cloud data warehouse. And I decided to go with Snowflake as there were two aspects to this, actually. We were also looking at Snowflake's data sharing capabilities outside to our customers, which has become like a really big like uh, roadmap initiative that's coming up for us is like to be able to share our product data through Snowflake's data sharing uh, uh, capabilities out to our customers directly for whatever period of time that uh, they have decided. Um, so it's definitely, we've also kind of built a partnership there. So there was, that was the biggest driving force for us to um, pick up Snowflake and start testing them with our go-to-market data lake, as well as um, kind of, you know, being able to monetize on um, our data there. So that was really uh, the key driving force there in terms of selecting the database that we were going with. There was a lot of um, conversations around the BI tool of choice, as well as like how we should be transforming the data. So now that we have Snowflake, we know that's our database of choice, like massaging the data, setting up those data models. Um, there was a lot of conversation there. So initially I spent a lot of time um, putting together, like what does the ideal tech stack look right? right? And that includes like having a transformation layer, something very powerful, such as like a DBT or an Altrix that can like do a lot of data massaging and like then be piping that down into Snow uh, Snowflake. However, I think that was my biggest pitfall in the very beginning, because when you are in Greenfield and really people just want to be able to even like look at all of this data in one place, it's best to go with the plug and play solutions. And a lot of time initially was wasted for me. I think like that was a big learning in scoping out like more enterprise level tools when um, it, I should have quickly done like more turnaround and plugged in something like Stitch and ETL vendor faster um, or Fivetran that we ended up using. So that really helped us gain speed in terms of getting something out there in front of stakeholders. So then we could have brought even more in-depth conversations about how to start structuring the data models. Um, so that was one learning that I kind of wanted to point out during our conversation today is that like relatively for smaller companies or early startups and even like under 500 people, like if you're setting this, your BI tech stack up, the biggest win immediately is even getting all of the data in one place. Whether or not like you'll need additional transformational capabilities to that data is like a secondary question that should be asked. But I think there's a huge value and like great improvement on runtime in terms of using something like an ETL vendor like Stitch or Fivetran. Yeah, this this has come up a lot as well of um, people, especially if you weren't already centralized, a lot of people are are centralizing more than kind of what Data Mesh recommends in, in kind of an end state to get into the habit of... of like good practices and learn how to work together on this before you can fully decentralize and that before you can even ha give domains the uh, autonomy to own any of their data at all. Um, so I think, I think you're going through that same thing. It sounds like you had more mature domains than a lot of people from a capability standpoint, but so much of this, it, I think 
in a in a very large scale, you know, uh, in a company that's got you know 200, 300 domains or more, and you you want to not limit them to just saying everybody should use Snowflake, but like ABC of Asylum at Flexport kind of said, no, we just said everybody has to use DBT and Snowflake. Those are our only two tools, and we've got like we we're putting a few more restrictions around it because yeah. the value of having absolute freedom isn't nearly as high as as just being able to move quickly and yeah. cohesively together. So I think you you're you're talking to the same thing and it's it's good to hear that you you came across across that relatively quickly even if not directly out of the gate. Yeah, I, and I think the space was so saturated as well 4 years ago. I mean, there's a lot more consolidation at least even in the visualization layer of the BI like world in terms of all the BI tools available. That was another whole like kind of um, piece to it, like surfacing that data up, like, and what kind of capabilities do you want your end stakeholders to have? But yeah, it, I really think the value of moving faster during that time when you're completely like you're all of your reportings in different sources, people are just like very like at the data maturity scale, you're very low. There's a lot of value with that. Yeah. Uh, and the other options that we were evaluating, they just didn't have native um, connectors to the options that we were looking at as like moving from an S3 bucket into Athena or our other option that we were evaluating was like I mentioned earlier, Databricks is BI cluster. Those two tools like didn't have out of the box like um, native integrations with a couple of like our vendor, ETL vendors. So Snowflake also became a really big top choice there. So it really helped us move really fast once we kind of got those two pieces figured out. Um, data was coming in in like structured format that we could start sharing and joining in and doing analysis for our stakeholders. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one thing that people have that I don't think you probably have as much scar tissue of people who've been doing data warehouses since the nineties or anything. But uh, when you talk to them, it's, it's the cost of change relative to anything related to data has been so huge and so high that, but what you're talking about is getting to a base level of figuring out how to share and that you can kind of talk to your consumers and say, we're going to share this in this way, but we're going to figure out a better way to share it. And so that you don't have people like locking into this is the way that this is, this is our way forward for now and into eternity versus, okay, this is good for right now. I think that that um, approach and that kind of mindset shift is, is really crucial. And I think it's a little easier in startups than it is in, in uh, large enterprises. And probably not a little, it's probably extremely. <laughs> but, yeah. So um, I, I would love to, to hear, um, as we talked about this a little bit in, in the pre-call, mm-hmm. you know, you got to the kind of this V0.1 or V0.2 um, mm-hmm. of kind of an early phase of getting to people understanding how to, to share the data. Would love to hear both how you've looked to evolve the platform now that you had something up and running, right? Like yeah. trying to completely replace it wholesale wasn't going to be probably easy. And, and, you know, even if it were, if you had a greenfield, it would be the right approach, but how did you evolve the actual technology stack and how did you work with people to evolve how they were leveraging it, both the, the sharing and the consuming aspect? 
Um, that's a great question. Yeah. So, I mean, what I was speaking to was like, like you said, like the very first version of that. Since then, we've made some additional changes, like in order to um, better suit our state end users, like how and their capabilities. We quickly realized actually that we have very adept, like individual team members in all of these divisions, like we have analysts as well as um, operation team members that are very um, adept at using like a common data warehouse space. So not necessarily we need something that's um, as like UI friendly on the front end, but now our tech stack is um, evolved and we've used Fivetran. And the biggest shift from why we moved from Stitch to Fivetran is a tool that you've mentioned earlier. We can now join in DBT and that was the evolution of kind of when people start adopting the tech stack that you were putting out there, like, oh, wow, this is so cool. I can look at this and this together. But now, because I'm always joining these two sources together, can you please build me a data model that'll quickly just take me to this? This is like this. This is the core set of data that I want to be looking at on a daily basis. And this is a very rudimentary example that I'm walking through. But DBT and kind of that additional layer of like staging and pushing to production, like massaging data before we're pushing it to production really came out of the conversations of being able to hit the ground running with something like Stitch. So now we have a lot more evolved um, data models for A, our finance team. That became a really big use case that this is the finance use case kind of came out from the gaps of discussion. And now what we have is more of a star schema that we've deployed. We have certain attributes, traits that we capture on every single account. We have financial tables that are um, queried by our sales and finance teams like that capture basically change in revenue on a monthly, quarterly, yearly basis. So those are all additional data model requests that kind of started stemming from that very first version of the data of looking at all this together and the need for something like Fivetran and DBT in combination, a more powerful combination arose. And that I would say almost is the second version of our data space. And DBT really allowed us in combination with Snowflake to create and really start dividing out those domain-driven um, ownership. And now we have like sales domain, we have the marketing domain, we have finance as a specific domain, and we have product as our um, last domain. And then finally, what I also mentioned was like our data sharing aspect. So product data then can reach out into somebody, a different organization's like kind of data warehouse, and we can share their product data out there. So that kind of like, um, if you ever seen the graph, like in terms of like expansion, like, and it's almost like very pretty, looks like a star schema. That's how we're kind of evolving those different areas to kind of be their own um, kind of data model and environment. Sorry, data environment is the word I was looking for as where they're like decentralized, but still kind of part of like the central organization. So that has been very exciting of getting those two tools kind of and involving our space like that. Now, the third evolution that we're currently in the process of, which is even more exciting, is like as you get more mature with these data models, the need for like a heavier analysis tech stack also or the data science space, what we call it, is also like arising. So now we're joining in tools like Airflow to help us schedule out our specific data science models that we're building out of these spaces and loading it back into some of these data sources that we're extracting from. So a uh, big use case for this is 
uh, example that I've mentioned, um, building an account scoring model, ranking our accounts based on certain specific data points, building a data science model on that, and ETLing that or ELTing that back into the data source itself. So now the third evolution of our data space is like, each of these domains kind of are starting to evolve a data science capability to them. And to um, support that, we want to kind of look into additional tools that will help us like, you know, work more with um, data, like the Airflow, Apache, Spark, and all of those um, in data science tools, tech stack. So that's like the third version of this. Um, And to see like the constant maintenance kind of comes from this constant um, conversation that the organization keeps having. I think that's primarily where we're being driven from, as well as like where we can see the need to optimize existing processes or automating them and making them less um, dependent on manual interactions. Um, That has been the biggest like way for us to do process improvement, tech stack improvement, and overall like, you know, kind of building out um, future data models as well. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and I would love to hear like how are you identifying when there's gaps and that you need to to solve those now versus in the future, right? Like when you're on the V1.0, I think a lot of people think that they've got to hit that V3.0 or whatever um, yeah. out of the gate instead of the V. So, like, how did you get people comfortable, and how have you kind of worked with? data users, whether it's producers and or consumers, to get them comfortable with, hey, we understand that there's a gap here, we're going to address it. And, and like, how have you gotten them to evolve and and upskill and, and level up what they're actually doing? I think it's a, you have to look at it as like, run, like, trying to run before you can walk. So if having that conversation with somebody, we realize there's a gap, hey, I'm not able to do some sort of predictive analytics and I want this really cool model that will tell me everything, but you don't even have the data in place. First you say, Hey, let's get you the data that you require. Let's set that up. And this is what we require for this. Now that you have had a chance to understand, really get a gut feel for the data that you have, maybe the predictive analytics or the fancy data science model approach that, or the algorithm that you were looking to deploy is not necessarily the use case that you need. And I've run into that one too many times, like in terms of that. And also the vice versa. Like sometimes you think a problem is very, very simple, but you kind of dive into it and you're like, wow, we've surfaced up some really cool insights for a lot of teams. And this needs to be kind of like applied to more like, you know, a comprehensive approaches or more complex approaches that we're taking. So I think constant conversation and being able to take it one step at a time and divvying up almost, I view a lot of my interactions like they're like data projects, right? Like we're almost leading them from like point zero to point like hundred. And it's like, first, let's get the access to data. Let's do some exploratory data analysis. Let's really get a feel for what you're trying to achieve. Then really solidifying the gaps and starting to knock them out by low hanging fruit first, like what we can address now immediately and be able to get you in a position of where 
you can start looking at um, something with more granule, like almost like a magnifying glass. And then you can kind of surface up like the different, you know, like problem with it, whether it's a data hygiene problem, because you run into that a lot as well after exploratory data analysis. And as well as like, how, how do we do that? How do we, can we automate that? So there's a lot of like side conversations that start driving from that. Um, that's been my approach. I'm like trying to really re- uh, recall like in terms of like other ways, like, and I think having those constant conversations and be- making them involved in each step of that process also gains trust with the end stakeholder to understand like how their um, like data approaches evolving over time. I mean, now our sales stream have like extensive models, which they didn't have earlier on where they didn't even have access to like, you know, certain aspects of the data at all. And like, now it's like, now they request really cool things, which we can say, yeah, we can do it because it was really important for us to start walking before we can start running, like doing all of the backend architecture work before you can kind of start spitting out like really cool analytics. Um, yeah. Uh, does that answer the question? Yeah. It sounds like essentially (laughs) it's funny how often this comes up, but the answer in a lot of cases is just heavy, heavy communication and expectations, yeah. right? Like, yeah. of, hey, we, we, we get that you want to get to the really, really cool analysis, but let's start by saying, like, what is the, what is the art of the possible? What is the information that we've got? And then what yeah. could be good use cases from this? Let's think about compliant and ethical use case. And let's talk about, you know, what, what could we actually do here? Compliance has been a big one. Yeah. PII data restrictions, especially with um, iterable space as we work with like, you know, marketers, that's a really big concern for them. So, and definitely um, even our um, internal house use cases. So uh, I would say, yeah, that's also a great topic uh, or great consideration in terms of that. Yeah. Yeah. And and Jen uh, Tedrow and her um, interview uh, about, you know, what the, what they were doing for their um, vendor decisioning process as well. It was a lot of what you're saying, the same things of, of um, making it so that, what do I want to say? How do I want to approach how to say it? But like really thinking through the conversations and say like, what are you actually trying to accomplish and, and work with them and, and keep them in constantly in the loop as you're making changes, if that's to the data model, if that's to the data platform, if that's to the whatever it is, that that constant feedback loop of, hey, I'm letting you know that here are the steps I've taken. You don't have to be involved in every step that I'm going from a, you know, zero to 100, like you talked about, but letting them know that you're, you're making that constant progress instead of kind of checking in and saying, hey, we went from one to 25, here's where we are. And they're like, oh, well, we didn't want you to head in that direction. We wanted you to head, you know, slightly to the left. And so you're pretty far off track from where we really wanted it to go. I think it sounds like just the the communication aspect is so crucial. It seems silly to say that as much as, as I do. We like, and like, like I said, we started, and another example that this really just brings up to my mind is like for CS, like, we created our finance tables, right? Where we're tracking every customer's like ARR month to month. Now this idea kind of like spurred something in their head and they're like, oh, this is really cool. We want some auditing capabilities around additional fields of tracking month to month 
on this. And now that they have this, the base level data, and we have that kind of coming in, piping in, we can build an additional data model now that can track like any CS activity related changes on a month to month basis. Um, and it's just like small conversations like this, or like where you're like being able to structure the data in a consumable format starts spurring like additional um, requirements, additional like kind of avenues of exploration. And it's definitely, I feel like it's almost like a Toyota 5Y approach, like that I like to take with any data project, like, okay, what are you looking for? Why, 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 why? And asking him until we can come down to a crux of like, what is actually what they're trying to solve for has also been really critical. But I think you summarized it very nicely in the beginning. It's definitely key is communication and constant communication. Yeah. And, and high empathy communication, right? Like exactly. so much of this is what do you want uh, versus like, hey, let's partner together. Um, I, I would love to, to kind of as we're we're getting, you know, we've got about uh, 10 minutes before I know you got to hop, but um, that I would love to kind of get into who is owning what, because, you know, in, in kind of the um, for these you know, 50,000 person companies that are doing data mesh, you, you really want to decentralize a lot of the stuff. You want to have kind of a centralized governance team and a centralized platform team, but everything else is, is very decentralized. But you talked about owning some of the models and, and I would love to, to as well figure out how are you preventing the traditional data breakages, right? Where the upstream changes in the um, operational data creates, you know, all sorts of chaos. That's been kind of the big, big issue and why Data Mesh is saying push the ownership to the um, domains themselves. So like, how are you working with them to prevent those changes from causing these huge breakages that are just kind of constant of everybody who's consuming everything is just used to their reports either breaking and anytime a change happens, it's bad. It's never incrementally good. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a great um, topic that you brought up, Scott, and pretty relevant, I guess, I think, too. Uh, let me say this. I don't think we've, we have domain-driven ownership, but I still think it is a form of hybrid working model. Um, and so I'm going to take a step back and kind of talk through how our BI team is structured. We have two core divisions within our BI team, which is the engineering side of house, and then we have the anatomy analytics side of the house. And each of our BI analysts are divvied up into um, specific domains. And we have domain stakeholders that are working very closely with those analysts. So we have a division for finance, customer success, <coughs> excuse me, sales and marketing and product. Um, so those are the three divisions we have right now as we like devolve, evolve like other spaces as well. Future, we're going to be having like an HR uh, division itself, like people team division. And so these are all our analysts that are working on with specific stakeholders to surface up, like, like you said, changes coming from upstream. So if a new data is being piped into Salesforce from another application, our sales analyst is really in closely touch with that team and is constantly working be like, and have regular syncs on a weekly basis to understand um, any changes in the environment, any changes in those data models. And then we have an engineer that is paired up with each of our analysts um, and, and 
our engineers are working with multiple analysts at any given point in time, and they work very closely to maintain those um, data pipelines in terms of like the changes that are reported downstream. So while we've divvied them up into their own domains, it's still very much an hybrid approach. I would almost say a lot of it still sits a little bit on the BI team. I think we are still trying to figure out the best approach to drive it more upstream, like you said, like, and have um, key stakeholders of like key application owners, like business system owners of like that, of the data that's coming in to drive that ownership. Um, But it's still a work in progress. And I do think the hybrid approach works best as like, BI then has to answer for a lot of like the data modifications we make or why the data looks a certain way downstream to any analysis that we create. So in order to, uh, that hybrid approach helps us stay in constant communication and understand and be able to speak to the data as well. Um, that's how we're currently structured. So we definitely, it's like more of a partnership with each of those domains. And we have a singular owner on the BI and that's responsible for any two departments at any given point in time. So, yeah. Makes sense. And I think this is kind of something within data mesh of, there's a lot of people who say like, as, as prescribed data mesh should be for every company. And it's like the cost of decentralizing all of the things at your size is just way, way, way bigger than it is the, the benefit <laughs> of doing it from everyone I've talked to. So I think where yeah. you're at makes a lot of sense. And, and I think it's also, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, we've had this centralized data team and they've owned too much of having to really understand the context. And if we get to a place where there's um, where the domains are mature enough and capable and we've got a platform that lets them really own their data and that people can easily consume from it, we still, I'm seeing this emerging issue of um, teams are, or companies, organizations, especially the C-suite, are having difficulty getting the cross-domain analytics, right? Of who is actually going to answer the questions about everything cross domain, you know, a domain may say, Oh, I'm going to pull in this data, but there may be organization wide questions that are difficult and important to answer. And so I think this centralized team, even with a, 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 you know, very, very large company might still want to have that centralized capability team around BI and, and, just the analysis. I think you hit the nail on the head with the cross domain piece for us, especially because like you said, there are, I've like covered so many examples where I'm talking about different domains, like analysis working together. And we we need somebody to be able to answer to that, right? Exactly. Oh, you're calculating ARR like this, but here's the usage metric. And this is why these can be combined together because they're both at the, both at the account level. And if it was just driven by the domains, um, you know, like siloed almost, it would be really hard to kind of make that cross application, right? Um, I think that's a really big use case as well for us. Um, I agree with that completely. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's almost like you need a a council to really say, okay, here's our our key business metric. And here, here is how we're going to 
specifically calculate that. If you want to go and calculate it in another way, you have access to the information, but it's not what we're going to use for the corporate aspect to drive decisions. It can be very interesting. You know, but at one point I was, uh, I ran FP&A and, and sales operations. So I had to, to calculate churn and everything like that. Churn, you know, people think yep. it's, it's, it's a very, or um, renewal rate or any of those things. And it's like, yeah. oh, there, there are like, I think 17 different ways when you really start to look at churn yep. and renewal rate and they're yep. all valuable to look at and they give you like yeah. different information sets and, and all that. But yeah, I'm sure you can feel my pain. Yeah. And being able to store all of those key definitions from each of those domains, right. While they are driving like the core KPI, like providing a space for other individuals who may be interested in that uh, information. I think I feel like BI in our, our company is playing a really big role with that, being able to surface up that information to other organizations as well as like a, um, you know, like uh, of interest, like in terms of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just exactly what you're talking about of uh, when you're talking about the product insights and things like that, of if you can put that in front of, of your sales teams and say, especially your customer success and you say, Hey, like this team, th- this one is showing us the uh, hallmarks of a big expansion opportunity. Let's dig in. Let's move quickly because they're they're just starting to hit their inflection point. So let's start to put something in front of them that's going to get them really excited and kind of double that inflection because we're going to exactly. give them kind of you know uh, more unlimited use or whatever. We're going to give them okay. We're we think that your use is going to double, but we're going to give you up to four x at the cost of two X for this year. And then we're going to renegotiate, you know, later and that you give them that incentive to do that. Or you start to see one that's showing signs of churn and you say, okay, like we, (laughs) do we think this is salvageable? Like, let's go do the homework. And if it's not salvageable, it's okay to walk away from it. And you say, okay, we've seen way too many that we've been trying this. We're not going to keep pressing and pressing and pressing on this. We're going to focus on the right right places. Like another thing that we're working, I feel like BI teams, like at least centralized BI teams like this that work as a liaison is between the engineering divisions and the front go-to-market divisions, being able to just even surface up like general concepts as well as roadmaps or like even like cross-domain initiatives, right? Like to work as that liaison, it becomes like a really big uh, bridge between those like otherwise like very low touch points, right? Between those two sides of the house. Like um, I do think BI has this unique capability to sit right in between both and be able to like consume information from both ends and being able to communicate it in each of the directions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think in the long run, what we want is the data producers and the data consumers to figure out how to speak each other's language and really have exactly. those high context exchanges without BI in the process. Yep. But in, <laughs> until people can get to that upskill capability, that upskill level, it's, it's, it's a nice to have, it's not a can have. So, um, well, again, Rhea, this has been a, a great, great conversation. Um, is there any way... Uh, that you want to wrap up the episode or anything that we didn't cover that you think people should really uh, know about? No, I think pretty much we touched a lot of the pieces. And um, yeah, I think 
the data mesh approach has a lot of scope of over the next upcoming years to optimize and like, you know, improve. I think it's a great way to, like you said, this really final concept, I think was really key of like removing the middlemen and kind of getting the data producers and the data consumers to talk within an organization to be able to talk to each other. I think it's like the step in the right direction in terms of that. Um, so yeah, I think that's a great way to wrap up the episode. <laughs> well, and, and you're on the journey, right? It's not that there, exactly. that you have to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to be there in a year if it, if it doesn't make sense. So, um, I, I'm sure there's going to be lots of people who would love to follow up with you. Uh, where is the best place to do that? And, and is there anything specific that you'd like people following up with you about? Yeah. Um, uh, please feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, I would love to chat more about, um, you know, data mesh applications, especially in the go-to-market analytics space. Um, Other topics that I'm very interested in talking about and maybe having other conversations about is around uh, financial analytics, as well as go-to-market analytics in general on the revenue operations side of the house. It's been my forte and i I'm starting to finally feel like an SME in this space. So um, I would love to chat more if you have um, interesting topics around that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for your time today. And uh, thanks everyone as well for listening. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Rhea Singh, the Business Insights Manager at Iterable. You can find a link to her LinkedIn in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left DataStacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable, and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.